Welcome to another instalment of Cause Essential ESG podcast. I'm here today with Phoebe Wynne Pope, Head of Responsible Business and ESG at Cause. My name's Eloise O'Brien. I'm a Senior Associate in the Responsible Business and ESG team, and we're coming to you from the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation. Phoebe, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Eloise. And today I thought we'd speak about a very topical issue, which is the intersection between human rights, climate change and decarbonisation. So, Phoebe, before we begin, I guess it's worth noting some of the significant events that have happened in the last few years. In April last year, the Human Rights Council passed a resolution recognising the right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. And that was followed by a resolution of the UN General Assembly in July, making this official, this new universal human right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. I guess I want to talk to you today a bit about what that means for the business community and in particular what ramifications they should expect from the recognition of this right. Well, let's let's go into that a little bit because I think it's really interesting thinking about how this is going to really help us understand how the environmental changes that we're going through are impacting on human rights. And it was interesting that the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights described the triple planetary crisis of climate change, biodiversity loss and pollution as the single greatest challenge to human rights in our era. So so we know we have to do something about that, not only for the environment, but also for people. And we know that as we're doing something about climate and biodiversity loss, we need to think about people along the way. So we need to make sure that we're doing this transition of our economy, that we're decarbonising and that we're doing this in a way that is also respectful of human rights. And, and I think that there's, there's lots here for us to unpack. But let's go first back to the UN General Assembly resolution and some of the substantive elements that were in that. Yes, so there were six substantive elements that the Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and the Environment recognised as constituting this new right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment. And those are clean air, a safe climate, access to safe drinking water and sanitation, healthy biodiversity and ecosystems, toxic-free environments in which to live and work, and healthy and sustainably produced food. So quite broad, Phoebe. The Human Rights Council before that has also identified the procedural elements of the right to a healthy environment. And these are really interesting because in these three procedural elements, we can see elements of the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. So we've got access to information on the environment. That's information around actual or potential actions that may impact the environment, particularly in circumstances when communities are especially impacted by ongoing actions or future planned actions. And it requires businesses to inform the public about environmental issues, including, for example, the results for an environmental impact assessment, which many businesses will already be familiar with and already doing. And in a human rights context, that would be sort of similar to that requirement to communicate and be transparent in a human rights due diligence process, right? That's right. Yes, you see the echoes of the UNGPs throughout that. And that's the same for the next procedural element, which is the right to participate in decision-making. So we see similarities with FPIC and stakeholder engagement more broadly. The Special Rapporteur emphasised that the important part is ensuring broad, inclusive and gender-sensitive public participation to fulfil human rights obligations. 
And that also applies to human rights defenders, who we know are particularly at risk when they're defending the environment. And then the final procedural right that the Human Rights Council spoke about was access to justice. So that includes access to courts to resolve claims for the right that's been violated. And it requires states to ensure broad legal standing to bring claims of this nature. So we're seeing a lot of human rights arguments underlying and underpinning environmental litigation in Australia already. And this is a really crucial step in increasing recognition of the right to a clean, safe and healthy environment under legislation and regulation. So I think we're going to see a push towards that as a result of this resolution. And again, going back to the UNGPs, the third pillar of the UNGPs is about remediation. It's about, you know, being able to bring claims when harm has been done and what that looks like. And I think that that sits very comfortably with that access to justice piece. That's right. And the right draws on established environmental law and human rights law principles, including most relevantly the principle of sustainable development. So states should undertake measures that allow present generations to meet their needs, but not at the expense of future generations being able to meet their needs. This is really critical when it comes to the right to a healthy environment, because we're seeing this tension, as you alluded to at the start, Phoebe, of we obviously need to rapidly decarbonise our global energy supply and heavy emissions industries, but we can't do so without having regard to the impacts on present populations' human rights. We can also think about, you know, some Australian states and territories who have already actually incorporated a right to a clean, healthy and sustainable environment into their legislation. For example, you know, in Victoria, the Environment Protection Act includes a provision that states must have regard to the rights of all people to enjoy a healthy and sustainable environment. So the concept isn't really new, but I think that there's been a lot more emphasis on this right and how it provides an umbrella for the realisation of so many other rights because it's so difficult to realise the right to health or the right to clean water or the right to life even when the environment isn't protected. That's right and climate change obviously impacts a whole range of rights as you say very fundamental rights such as the right to life and the right to health etc but it also impacts on a range of social, cultural and economic rights, like rights to decent work, Indigenous people's rights to practice their culture, to access their traditional lands and resources. And I think it's interesting to keep in mind that there's this challenging balance at all times. There's, there's no ability to choose one right over the other. Businesses have this obligation to respect human rights under the UNGPs. And now that this right has been recognised as a human right, businesses are going to have to build in respect for the right to a healthy environment into their operations and their business relationships and they're going to have to think about it through the frame of human rights due diligence when they're thinking about their human rights impacts assessments. So it's going to be quite a substantial shift for business. The resolution specifically calls on business to adopt policies, enhance international cooperation, strengthen capacity building and continue to share good practice in order to scale up efforts to ensure a clean, healthy and sustainable environment for all. So the, the obligation isn't just on states. No, that's right. And as we sort of think about the decarbonisation, if you like, of the world's energy supply and what that means in terms of really trying to help realise this healthy environment that we need and that decarbonisation process is part of a process to stay aligned with the Paris Agreement, what we've discussed before on our previous 
podcast on the just transition, what's good for the planet isn't always inherently good for people. Today, I think it'd be great for us to talk a little bit more about this danger of carbon tunnel vision or decarbonisation tunnel vision, if you like, that intense focus on decarbonisation at any cost and some of the human rights risks that businesses need to consider as they decarbonise. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting place to go, Phoebe, because lots of businesses are very familiar with the physical risks of climate change and what that means for human rights. So diminishing global water supplies, increasing water insecurity, extreme weather events, extreme heat, all those things obviously, as we've discussed, impact on human rights. But what is less well understood are the human rights impacts flowing from transition risks. So transition risks are the risks that accompany the policy, legal, technological and market changes we need to transition to a low carbon economy globally. They often intersect with the human rights impacts of climate change in the sense that, for example, many transition industries like renewable energy industries require a lot of water. Access to water is an issue that's exacerbated by the physical impacts of climate change, but also by our transition activities. Obviously, it goes without saying that Transition activities can and do contribute positively to economic opportunities, energy access and affordability and community resilience in the face of climate change, but they can equally compound and exacerbate geographic inequalities that climate change creates. So there's a whole sort of climate justice piece here, isn't there? So you, you talk about the geographic inequality and we've seen the sort of inequitable effects on rural or regional communities in, you know, even in Australia and how that plays out, but also between nation states. So in developing countries whose economies rely heavily on exploiting natural resources and in particular unexploited reserves of fossil fuels, there's a massive issue in terms of what that means for them to leave those fossil fuels unexploited and how they develop their economies for the future. So this sort of issue of climate justice is often left out of the discussion and we're not really going to dive into that today because that's a whole nother discussion and maybe we should do another podcast on that. But it is good to remember that these are extraordinarily complex issues that really require deep and careful thought. Yes, and I think you touched on something there, Phoebe, that it's these impacts are multifaceted and it's not just transitioning into green industries that raises risks, there's also the risks associated with transitioning out of fossil fuel industries or emissions intensive industries. So as we move away from fossil fuels and fossil fuel dependent growth, as you were referring to for a lot of developing nations, still in that phase of fossil fuel dependent growth, we contend with issues like stranded fossil fuel assets. And on the face of it, that's a, it's a financial risk, it's a business risk, but that comes with serious risk to people because stranded assets often mean stranded communities. It can mean things like job and income loss, job quality deterioration in certain areas that were dependent on fossil fuel for their local industry, geographical imbalances, as you've mentioned, between job loss and job creation, and less investment in critical infrastructure for the communities surrounding those assets. So there's, it's not like when a fossil fuel asset is decommissioned, a renewable energy project pops up in its place with the same number and the same quality of jobs. They require different skills, different workforces, and different environments often. And I think we've got a really great example of where it was uh, these issues were not properly 
considered. And that was the closure of the coal mines in the UK, which really exposed those mining towns to human rights impacts for a long time after the shutdown of the industry. And it's just sort of interesting sort of little aside, I suppose, to dive into it. But the, the coal industry phased out in the UK in several stages, starting from the 60s. By 1997, jobs in that industry had dropped by 90%, resulting in that increase, all those all those dangers that you've just mentioned, an increase in uh, unemployment, out-migration and poverty. Coal regions experienced low employment rates and mines fell into disrepair, causing environmental and health impacts for those communities. And with little support for the workers and for the regeneration of industry in those areas, regional inequality remains a really big issue and the populations in those areas have been experiencing higher rates of poverty and unemployment ever since. So this is what we want to avoid. Like we, we want to learn from those lessons of the past and think about the decarbonisation properly. Definitely. And when we're thinking about historical case studies, there's also really clear parallels between the rapidly growing demand for transition minerals like cobalt and copper and conflict minerals. So when we rapidly digitised our day-to-day lives in the early 2000s, demand for conflict minerals, tantalum, tin, tungsten, which are all found in common consumer electronics, your phone, your laptops and cars, this demand exploded for those products. And demand for conflict minerals contributed to fragility and conflict and violence dynamics in in mineral-rich developing countries. We're seeing a similar thing happen now. There's massive amounts of demand for cobalt, a large proportion of which is mined in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we really need to consider the impact that demand for materials required, the raw materials required for the transition, is going to lead to exploitation of those workforces, those populations, but also balance that, as we said, with their right to exploit their natural resources. So it's a really complex issue. And I think I mentioned earlier, and I'd like to come back to it briefly, just the issue of water access, because I think it's a really interesting one too that draws out just another side of it. A lot of renewable energy projects will be developed on land that is already subject to water scarcity issues. And projects like green hydrogen, for example, require huge amounts of water. As we electrify our power supply and our cars, we're going to be placing increasing demand on already stressed water systems. And we just need to be constantly cognizant of the water we're using for the generation of power is also impacting on local populations' access to that water to realise their right to an adequate standard of living. Which brings us back again, doesn't it, to that just transition, which we have done a podcast on this, you and I, and we'll put that link to the episode in the show notes. But as a quick recap, I suppose the term just transition refers to that idea that the transition to a low carbon economy must happen in a way that fairly shares the benefits of the transition while supporting those who will be negatively impacted. The idea of a just transition was embedded in the preamble to the Paris Agreement in 2015, which notes that those commitments are made taking into account the imperatives of a just transition of the workforce and the creation of decent work and quality jobs in accordance with nationally defined development priorities. This is so important. And as we work to decarbonise our business and the global economy, and we continue to work through what a just transition looks like, businesses need to make sure that they're identifying, preventing and mitigating, that they're thinking about these human rights impacts of all of their decarbonisation activities. 
That's right, Phoebe, that's some homework for us to all go away and think about. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Essential ESG. Click follow in whatever app you're listening to this on so you can stay updated with new episodes. Thanks, Eloise. Thanks, Phoebe. This podcast is for reference purposes only. It does not constitute legal or other advice and should not be relied upon as such. You should always obtain legal advice about your specific circumstances.